0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. President Trump is pulling the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Agreement to a chorus of criticism.
1: Clearly, uh, he doesn't understand what's in the agreement, how it works, the notion that he's going to get any country to join him at the table to renegotiate this deal is laughable if it wasn't so sad. It's cover for an unwillingness to do anything that discomforts his friends in the coal and oil industry.
0: Meanwhile, the majority of ExxonMobil shareholders have called on the oil giant to come clean about climate risks.
2: You know, we're witnessing a historic shift in how investors look at climate change and climate risk. The biggest investors in the world are now willing to challenge their largest holdings around what is now seen as a core financial issue in climate change.
0: That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. President Trump declared June 1st that the United States is withdrawing from the Paris Agreement to address global warming, leaving more than 190 nations behind who still agree and joining two others that don't, Syria and Nicaragua. And Nicaraguan delegates say they didn't like the deal because it didn't go far enough to protect the planet. President Trump campaigned against the Paris Accord and, despite pleas to remain from many other governments, businesses, scientists and active citizens, he went to the Rose Garden to fulfill his pledge.
3: As president, I have one obligation, and that obligation is to the American people.
1: The Paris Accord would undermine our economy, hamstring our workers, weaken our sovereignty, impose unacceptable legal risk, and put us at a permanent disadvantage to the other countries of the world. It is time to exit the Paris Accord.
0: To explain what that means for the U.S. and the planet, we turn now to Alden Meyer, who is Director of Strategy and Policy for the Union of Concerned Scientists. Alden, welcome back to Living on Earth. Glad to be with you again, Steve. And as I recall, you've been following the international climate negotiations for, what, 27 years?
1: That's right. The original negotiations leading up to the Rio Treaty uh, in 1992 and then on to Kyoto and Bali and Paris. And here we are.
0: So what's your reaction to President Trump's decision to withdraw the United States from the Paris Agreement?
1: Well, it's a very sad day. It's it's a reckless decision. Uh, he Uh, sold it with a a mix of uh, half-truths and outright lies about what Paris is, what it does, what its implications are for the United States. Clearly, uh, he doesn't understand what's in the agreement, how it works, the notion that he's going to get any country to join him at the table to renegotiate this deal is laughable if it wasn't so sad. The reality is it's it's cover for uh, an unwillingness To do anything that discomforts his friends in the coal and oil industry and hurts short term profits. And the the irony is, it comes at the expense of the very voters that put him in office and that he purports to represent. Uh, The impacts on on climate change are just as serious in Paris, Kentucky, as they are in Paris, France. And the mayor of Pittsburgh has already responded that he intends to keep pushing forward uh, with climate action in Pittsburgh to try to generate clean energy jobs for people that are unemployed in Pittsburgh. So it's misleading, and 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 really it's a sad day, and it's going to have a devastating impact on America's reputation around the world and, and the administration's ability to get much done on other issues they care about where leaders would have to make what would be seen as concessions to this president in front of their own voters.
0: Now, President Trump made a big point of saying that the Paris Agreement is unfair to the United States. Uh so to what extent uh, is he accurate in that analysis?
1: Well, again, it just shows how little he understands about it. As, as you know, Steve, Paris uh, asked countries to put forward their own commitments, what they thought they could do, what they thought was fair. Uh, there was no analysis or comparison of those, no scorekeeping, no negotiations and backroom bunkers the way there was in Kyoto, for example, between the European Union, Japan, and the U.S., on the famous Kyoto target, so every country put forward what they thought was fair from their point of view, and all those proposed commitments were accepted and embodied in the Paris Agreement, uh, with the understanding that everyone was going to have to come back to the table and do more down the road if we were going to meet the temperature limitation goals in Paris, which are quite ambitious. So the president just doesn't understand uh, what the meaning of the word fair is. There are also outright myths and lies about what countries like China and India have to do. The notion that because China took on a target to stabilize its national emissions in 2030 means they get a free pass or a free ride for the next 15 years is laughable. China has to do a yeoman's work to uh, decarbonize its electricity sector, invest in renewable energy, electric vehicles, to meet what is a fairly ambitious target. The good news is... Uh, China appears to be well ahead of schedule and will peak their national missions well before 2030. But the notion that somehow that was unfair to the United States and China had to do nothing is just absurd.
0: Now, a technical question for you, Alden. As I understand it, the rules of the Paris Agreement require four years for a party to get out. So what does this mean uh, in terms of what President Trump has said? What's he going to do for these next four years, if I have that right?
1: Well, you're right, Steve. A country has to wait until three years after entry into force of the Paris Agreement, which was early November of last year, before they can formally notify uh, the Secretary General of the United Nations of their intent to withdraw. And then they have to wait one year after that to actually formally withdraw. So the irony here is the first day that President Trump could legally withdraw the United States from the Paris Agreement is the day after the 2020 presidential election in November. Uh, so there's this notion that we're pulling out. It really doesn't mean anything. It's all drama and show and a lot of noise signifying nothing.
0: So we will continue to be part of the Paris Accord, we being the United States, but what kind of legitimacy will we have in, in the process? And, and how will this affect us in the broader negotiations, the, the, the Framework Convention on Climate Change, the conference of those parties is, is in bond this next November, we haven't pulled out of that framework convention. What kind of legitimacy do we now have in this climate negotiation process?
1: Well, I think almost none, or I would say probably none. I mean, um, technically, yes, we have a right to be at the table, but now that the president has formally disavowed Paris and dis the rest of the world, uh, really doesn't understand what the agreement is, claims it's unfair to the U.S., wants to renegotiate it, I don't think people are going to want to have too much to do with the U.S. Uh, delegation at these talks. And, of course... Paris was the culmination of 25 years of work under the framework convention adopted in Rio. Uh, so the notion that you can disavow this truly global uh, effort to come to grips with the climate crisis and then pretend to be concerned about climate change and, and come to the meetings and, and participate actively, I think will be, be rejected. I, I think the, the U.S. will be treated like a, a pariah uh, at these negotiations uh, for the next uh, four years, unless there's an about-face Uh, by the president uh, before uh, his term is up.
0: Alden, how much of a blow to developing countries uh, is President Trump's uh, halting of U.S. payments to the Green Climate Fund?
1: Well, there's two factors there, Steve. One is we don't yet know how Congress is going to respond to the president's proposed budget. And, of course, under our Constitution, unless the president decides to ignore it, uh, he does not have the power of the purse. The president proposes, Congress disposes, is the famous phrase, uh, and there's already been indications from both Republicans and Democrats on the Hill that they reject the deep cuts in foreign aid, including in, in climate and energy assistance that the administration's put forward. The other factor we don't know is how much will other countries, uh, both the other developed countries like Germany, Japan, United Kingdom, France, as well as major countries like China, which are now in the uh, development finance game, how much will they do? To try to make up some of the shortfall created by whatever the U.S. ends up doing. Uh, But there's no doubt that uh, the U.S. will not be doing our fair share of the lift here. Uh, We had a big role in creating this problem uh, with our past emissions. On the impact side, we have a responsibility to help those countries deal with those impacts. It's also in our economic and security interest to help developing countries grow their economies in a different way than we did, uh, because if they replicate our fossil fuel-intensive uh, development path of the 1800s and 1900s, uh, it's game over in terms of the climate. So we have self-interest as, as well as sort of ethical obligations at play here. And, and uh, luckily, there are a number of, of thoughtful uh, Republican uh, members and senators on the Hill that understand that.
0: Alden, how optimistic are you about the rest of the world carrying forward with Paris?
1: Uh, I'm very optimistic that there will not be any uh, exodus from the agreement. You haven't seen a single country say they would join President Trump in withdrawing from the agreement. I also don't think uh, I see any indications that the major emitting countries are going to pull back or reconsider the commitments they made under Paris, uh, much much the opposite, actually. Uh, countries like China, I think, are, are recognizing that they can... Up the formal commitments they made under Paris because they're so well ahead of schedule in meeting them. Uh, I think the concern could come down the road in in two or three years when we get to the point where countries have to be thinking about their next round of commitments or what they can do to revise their 2030 commitments if they're one of the countries that took on the the longer term uh, obligations. And and there you might have an argument being made by some in some places that uh, Why should we be considering doing more if the world's largest economy and second largest uh, polluter is saying they won't do anything or much less? But I think the reality of climate impacts and extreme weather events and the cost of those is concentrating mines in Delhi and Beijing and Brasilia and other world capitals as well as the plummeting cost of solar, wind and other clean technologies is making it clear that even putting climate change aside the low carbon pathway is the least cost route to develop your economy. I think those two trends uh, will blow away any sort of geopolitical impact of what President Trump did today.
0: Alden Meyer is Director of Strategy and Policy for the Union of Concerned Scientists. Alden, thanks so much for taking the time with me today.
1: Glad to be with you, Steve.
0: Well, despite President Trump's decision to pull the U.S. out of the Paris climate agreement, investors in the oil giant ExxonMobil have raised the ante for climate action. ExxonMobil shareholders recently handed a stunning defeat to management at its recent annual meeting, voting by some 62 percent to call on it to reveal its climate-related risks. A similar shareholder resolution last year won just 38 percent of the vote. So we called up Andrew Logan, Director of Oil and Gas Programs at the Nonprofit Business Sustainability Group Series, for some insights. Welcome back to Living on Earth, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So how significant is this? What does it exactly call on Exxon to do? This is historic. I mean, this year, for the first time, we are
2: seeing investors cast majority votes calling on companies in oil and gas and power sectors to assess and disclose how they're preparing for a low-carbon future. So, you know, prior to this year, I would say a vote in the 30%, 40% range would have been considered over the top, but now we're seeing a majority vote to companies from ExxonMobil to Occidental to uh, PPL.
0: So what do you think Exxon will do now that the shareholders have voted this way?
2: Well, I mean, I think they clearly have to do something. And it's not just that the vote was as high as it was, so that's obviously significant, but that the very largest owners of Exxon stock, so the three largest holders of the company, all voted in favor of the proposal. So I think it's very hard for a company, even a company as large and stubborn as ExxonMobil, to go against its core investors in that way.
0: So, Andrew, why was there a big jump in support for this shareholder resolution calling on Exxon to analyze its climate costs since last year's vote, which was down around, what, 38 percent?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, what we've seen is that the very biggest investors in this company, and in most companies, I mean, BlackRock and State Street are the largest investors in almost every company on earth, just because of their size, they have now come to see climate change as not just an environmental issue, but really as a material financial issue. And so they are now voting you know, in support of these proposals in a way that they hadn't in the past. And what's interesting about those three funds, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, is they're largely index funds, which means they can't sell the stock. They're stuck with it in perpetuity. And so if you're stuck owning a stock until the company goes away, you have a very strong vested interest in making sure the company sticks around as long as possible.
0: Now, this vote by Exxon shareholders came after an investigation into what Exxon was telling investors about its climate risks. That was done by Inside Climate News in cooperation with Columbia University, also the Los Angeles Times. And now, I guess, Exxon is still under investigation by several states' attorneys general for potentially misleading shareholders about climate risk to the company. To what extent do you think that publicity played a role in the way that shareholders voted on this resolution?
2: I mean, it's a good question, and it's it's a bit hard to say, but certainly Exxon's history on climate change has not done much to build trust with investors. Sometimes a vote is as much about how much investors trust management as it is about the issue under question. So I think one way to look at the vote today is that you know, investors, by and large, don't trust this company and the way it's being run.
0: It's annual meeting time. And Exxon isn't the only major oil company, a fossil fuel energy company where shareholders voted to pressure to analyze climate risks. We have Occidental Petroleum and PPL, which is the largest utility in Pennsylvania. There were also majorities for similar resolutions there. What's going on? I mean, I think what's going on is, you know, we're witnessing a historic
2: shift in how investors look at climate change and climate risk. You know, Occidental and PPL were the first majority votes for these kind of proposals that we've ever seen. So I think what's happening is that the biggest investors in the world are now willing to challenge their largest holdings around what is now seen as a core financial issue in climate change. And that's a very different place than we were even just a couple of years ago.
0: Andrew Logan is director of the Oil and Gas Program at the Nonprofit Group Series. Andrew, thanks so much for taking the time today. You're quite welcome. Thanks for having me. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, Please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. Drought is stalking parts of sub-Saharan Africa as the climate warms and weather patterns shift. Crops shrivel in the field and livestock die, making the drought a crisis in some areas. For much of the Horn of Africa, the seasonal rains have largely failed for the last two years, devastating the region where as many as 17 million people face starvation. For southern Africa, the seasonal rains still come, but they arrive late and end early, leaving rural people struggling to find enough water for their households, animals, and crops. As Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom reports, Women are usually the ones who have to fetch the water, and in this time of scarcity, they are particularly vulnerable.
4: A herd of goat, sheep, and cows ambles up a steep mountain road in the tiny country of Lesotho. A shepherd, wrapped head to toe in a wool blanket and hat, rides alongside on a horse, leading the animals towards a stream for their daily drink. Lesotho is an extremely mountainous country, completely surrounded by South Africa. With little flat land for growing food, the majority of people here depend on livestock for their food and income. In times of drought, that means herdsmen may spend the majority of their day bringing animals to water. It's a hard life, but the real burden of drought falls disproportionately on women, like 66-year-old Nitsanka Ramatsi. She stands tall and straight in a colorful wrap outside her small stone house clinging to the side of a mountain. She's a retired office worker and keeps a tidy garden when there's enough rain.
5: Well, men and
6: women don't play the same role. Men and women don't play the same role. So men didn't feel that drought as women women did because men men are not drawing water. water. They just just want to eat. (laughs) 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 So women
4: women are the ones
6: that feel
5: the the
4: the drought. Across the continent, It is solely the responsibility of women to collect water and bring it home for drinking, cooking, and cleaning. It's our culture.
6: It's our culture.
4: If you go to the well,
6: other men will be laughing at you. They will say, Your woman has given you something to tame you. They They want to wash, they want to have clean
4: clothes, to have food. But from where they get the water, they don't care. They don't care. To get water, Ramatse has to walk an hour from her tiny village to town, wait for two hours to fill her jugs and then walk an hour back up a steep mountain to her house. When
6: I come there I'm hungry.
4: When I come back, I am
6: hungry and there is no food. I have to start again and cook. I'll have to wash, you see. I'm having a grandchild. After washing myself, I'll have to use that water to wash myself in order to save. That day, I won't do anything except cooking and eating, because I will be tired from drawing the water. It affects my day, because my day will pass without doing anything. So two days, days, three days will pass, then I'll have to go again.
4: In other parts of Africa, the drought has been even more personally devastating for women, Asli Mohammed is an aid worker with CARE International in Somalia, where the drought was already causing displacement and widespread famine. She says before the drought, women had a two-mile round-trip journey to get water. But now, because water sources have dried up, they must walk as much as 30 miles to get water for their households. Along the way, Asli says women and girls are extremely vulnerable to exploitation and sexual violence. That that Chani, he he got, you know, women...
7: In that journey, you've got women walking alone. There's no protection. They meet men, either they tell false and say, I will marry you or I do this,
4: and then they use her or they rape her. Across much of the region, rape comes with a social stigma that keeps many victims silent or worse. Asli recounts the story of a 16-year-old girl who was raped by an older man. She lost her virgin. She lost her virginity, she lost
7: lost everything. She lost hope. I I tell her, I say, this is not your fault. This happens all over the world. Don't lose your hope. Continue your life. Now she is fine, but before she meet with me and my team, she decided to kill herself.
3: She decided to kill herself.
4: Asli says she's seeing a sharp increase in early marriage for girls. Families will choose to marry off their daughters to have one less mouth to feed at home. Or girls may choose to migrate to cities like Baidoa, north of the capital Mogadishu, in search of survival.
7: When they come to the urban area, they don't have. When they come means, to the urban areas, they don't, the areas they don't have any means. They don't have any skills. They don't have, the they don't have education. Have so marry. the only option she has is to marry a man survive. to survive. I, I see 16, 14, 15. That's
4: common to marry. That's common to marry. As a result, the average age for a girl's first sexual encounter has dropped significantly. Care International reports that in Mozambique in 2003, for example, girls' first sexual experience came at around age 16. But since the drought began, it's closer to 11 or 12. That brings particular danger for childbirth should the girl become pregnant. Care says they're also seeing a sharp increase in HIV rates. In rural areas where HIV is endemic, the rate of infection increases by roughly 11% with every drought, a fact that's attributed, at least in part, to earlier sexual encounters and sexual assault. Aid worker Asli says the drought and the struggles women face are personal for her. I'm a
7: Somali woman.
4: I am a Somali
7: woman, and I'm feeling what all Somali women are feeling. Because I am a woman. I'm a mother. I am a mother. I'm a I'm wife. A wife. I'm, a I'm a sister, an aunt. I'm aunt.
4: So, so I like I to like support. support. I like every girl like to get her rights. To get her rights. But that may not happen. Persistent drought might become the new normal for much of sub-Saharan Africa. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change predicts that much of the region will become hotter and drier in the future with a changing climate. The seasonal long rain should be falling in East Africa now, between March and June. So far, the rains have been disappointing and sporadic, leading to fears that the punishing drought will continue. Still, some forecast models are predicting that the end of the rainy season, June, will bring near-average rainfall. People across the region, especially women, are praying their right. For Living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom in Talbot Sega, Lesotho.
0: Drought is also a perennial problem in parts of India, especially in the south. And now the state of Tamil Nadu is experiencing its worst drought in 140 years. While citizens struggle to meet their daily water needs, the American-branded beverage companies Coke and Pepsi have become a focus of concern. Keith Schneider is senior editor and chief correspondent at the environmental news website, Circle of Blue, and has reported on this struggle for water. Keith Schneider, welcome back to Living on Earth. It's nice to be back. Thank you, Steve. So tell me, where is Tamil Nadu? What's it like in the big city there, Chennai, right?
3: Chennai, which is a metropolitan area of 10 million people and the fourth largest metropolitan region in India. Tamil Nadu is southern India, The state of 78 million people, and over 1,000 kilometers of coastline on the Bay of Bengal it has had tremendous threats from ecological disturbances and meteorological disruptions over the last several years. What's the problem now with the drought? Chennai and Tamil Nadu have episodic droughts every year because there are two monsoons, or were two monsoons, one in the fall and one in the late spring. And between those monsoons, typically in other years, there were dry periods, but those dry periods are now extending, and in this case, for two years. So the drought is crippling industrial companies. It's become a serious impediment to the quality of life all over Tamil Nadu, long water lines municipalities are shutting off water to their customers weekly now in some cases. So, I mean, water is not something that's taken for granted at any time by anybody in Tamil Nadu.
0: So talk to me about the history of Coke and Pepsi in this now very dry region.
3: Well, PepsiCo and Coca-Cola had been active in India up until 1970 when industry was nationalized and they left. Pepsi came back in 1989 to establish a new plant and Coca-Cola followed in 1991. And things were, you know, relatively peaceful. Until 2002, Coca-Cola built a plant in Kerala, a southern India state that borders Tamil Nadu, and during a drought, and farmers and their wives protested and blocked entrance to that plant and said that Coca-Cola had no sort of moral authority to begin privatizing scarce water resources, and this was water that they felt was being taken from their crops. And they protested, and the state of Kerala totally shut the plant down in two thousand and four and it never opened and it sort of opened up this moral threat that Indian residents found a moral threat from American branded companies to take water, privatize what they viewed as a public resource and it has spread since two thousand and fourteen There have been six plants coca cola and Pepsi plants that have been shut down, and there is Very significant public support for being very tough on these American-branded bottlers.
0: And remind us, these are American intellectual property rights to brand Coke or Pepsi, but how much of this is actually owned locally by Indians?
3: Most of the plants are owned locally by Indian bottlers. Coca-Cola has, as, as of 2015, 57 bottling plants. It has less now because they closed three last year. And Pepsi in 2015 had 37 plants, most of them owned by Indian Indian families.
0: So what's the argument of Pepsi and Coke as well as to why they should be
3: allowed to harvest this water? One interesting thing here is that neither Coke nor Pepsi would answer my questions like that. So I can suggest what they would say based on my reporting. And what they might say is, one, they have a right to this water, just like any industry in Tamil Nadu has a right you know, smelters use water, tanneries use water, beer makers use water. Why should Coke and Pepsi be singled out? Not to be able to take advantage of a resource that's so essential to their product line. Two, that Coke would argue that in taking this water, it's going to replace every drop that it takes somewhere in Tamil Nadu as part of its global water conservation program. And three, they would say that they're a private company or public companies that have a right to make money off of what they do, which is, to make drinks. And the last piece they would say is that they're employers. So they have good jobs in non-polluting plants. These plants don't pollute very heavily in a state in which good jobs that are in non-polluting industries are, are necessary.
0: And of course, on the flip side, then the argument is, wait, this is the public's water. And now you're going to take it, privatize it, put a profit in it when the situation is desperate. This is outrageous.
3: Well, the American bottling issue in Tamil Nadu is interesting to me because at the one hand, an American-branded company is taking water, privatizing water for their private gain. But at the same time, Tamil Nadu residents say almost nothing about the extensive pollution in their rivers, the industrial pollutions by Indian-owned plants, and the lack of sewage treatment. So rivers in Tamil Nadu, as in much of the rest of India, are filthy. So there's this bifurcated debate. On one side, the American companies are easy targets for social activism around privatizing water and what is viewed as a foreign intrusion in their culture. And on the other side, there's very little comment on the extensive water pollution, which actually is ruining much more water than what the bottled water is taking from rivers and groundwater in Tamil Nadu.
0: So, I take it at the end of the day, this issue is more about environment versus profits and outsiders versus natives.
3: That's a big piece of it. And the other piece of it is that in India, rural India in particular, the idea that big companies, big foreign companies, can just descend on these areas with their major plants and do as they wish, that era is over. Why are
0: Coke and Pepsi so determined to get into these markets?
3: Well, Coke and Pepsi are multi billion dollar companies that need to expand their markets. And in the West, sales of Coca-Cola and Pepsi are descending, are diminishing. And the business plan for both companies was to expand principally in Asia. It's not working very well. Despite multi-billion dollar marketing campaigns and both companies have initiated some pretty significant water conservation measures. Coke uses less water than it ever did before and it says it's replenishing every drop that it uses. This hasn't convinced its critics. So,
0: the protesters here have been successful in being able to shut down some of these plants in the past few years. Look at the future. What do you expect to see happening ahead?
3: Um, I think Coke and Pepsi are going to have trouble. I really do, because water is becoming much more scarce around the world. Uh, groundwater in Chennai is an asset that's closely watched now because a good deal of it is polluted. So the clean water is seen as a valuable natural resources to be protected. And that wraps into this whole Coke and Pepsi thing because there, they're tapping clean water, clean groundwater, not polluted groundwater. So they're seen as tapping the best that Tamil Nadu has to offer in its water resources, which plays into this resistance that the private companies are privatizing a public resource. So... Keith, how much
0: of an example to activists here in the United States is the resistance to Coke and Pepsi there in
3: India? Well, civil resistance in India looks much different than civil resistance in the United States. People can gather very quickly in India to protest. There seems to be much more flexibility in their schedules to be able to protest. And they'll, be, they'll stick at it for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks at a time. In Kerala, where the first Coca-Cola resistance began around a plant, those protests had lasted a year. People showed up there at the plant gates every morning by the hundreds for well over a year before the district decided to act and the state shut the plant down. Very impressive to watch an Indian protest i was you know at the way it built over the week from this tiny little protest and how it spread and by the you know working in the institutions the various associations the business associations the teachers you know unions it was it was amazing how it just built and built and built into this really tremendously joyous festival of cultural grievance
0: well keith i want to thank you for taking the time with me today keith schneider is senior editor and chief correspondent at the environmental news website circle of blue thanks so much keith Thank you, Steve. Coming up, India is amazing citizens and investors alike with a massive renewable energy program and no new coal power plants. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned.
8: Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. For years, India has been reluctant to address limits on global warming gas emissions, citing the need to advance development with coal. But in 2015, when India came to the climate talks in Paris, Prime Minister Narendra Modi spearheaded the launch of an international solar alliance to raise $1 trillion to light up the developing world. And living on Earth was there.
5: Today, the world must turn to sun, to power our future. As the developing world lifts billions of people into prosperity, our hope for a sustainable planet rests on a bold global initiative. That is natural climate justice. The vast majority of humanity is blessed with generous sunlight round the year. Yet many are also without any source of power. This is why this alliance is so important. We want to bring solar energy into our lives and homes by making it cheaper, more reliable, and easier to connect to grid.
0: The Alliance will develop best practices and common regulation, stimulate investment and solar product development, Modi said, and will become the foundation of the new economy.
5: This is an Alliance that brings together developed and developing countries, governments and industries, laboratories, and institutions in a common enterprise. This day is the sunrise of new hope, not just for clean energy, but for villages and homes still in darkness, and for our mornings and evenings filled with a clear view of the glory of the sun. Thank you very much.
0: And now, some 18 months later, India's prime minister has turned promise into action at home, turning his country of 1.3 billion people into perhaps the world's best example of the revolution in green energy. International environmental reporter Stephen Leahy has been following this remarkable transition in India, writing about it in National Geographic. Welcome to Living on Earth. Great to be here. So um, Prime Minister Modi made a big promise at the Paris climate talks to bring solar energy to India and indeed the developing world. To what extent are we seeing that promise actually being carried out here?
9: Well, I think it's happening faster than anybody expected because it was a gigantic promise and many people were skeptical that they could deliver. But in just these last two years, they have done remarkable things in terms of creating a uh, new approach to bringing energy to an awful lot of people. A lot of people thought that even if they did try and do it, they couldn't do it this quickly. I mean, the perception about India may be that, you know, it's a bureaucratic government that takes a long time to make decisions. There's lots of red tape, but that seems not to be the case when it comes to this. You've been
0: covering this for a long time, Stephen. How does this story feel? How exciting is this?
9: Yeah, I've probably been more excited about this than I have about anything in the last few years, since Paris, really. Paris was a big development, but that was talk.
0: Now India is delivering on the ground. For the record, how vulnerable is India to climate change?
9: Yeah, they're one of the most vulnerable countries. They've got water problems, water shortages. They've had huge heat waves that kill hundreds of people. They've got the sea level rise issue with most of the coastal areas. There's threats to their monsoon, which is their agriculture is completely dependent upon. So there's a whole range of real impacts already happening to India right now, and it's only gonna get worse in the future.
0: Now, as I understand it, there are more than a billion people in India and some 300 million who have no access to electric power. What are the biggest challenges to providing universal electricity access in India?
9: One of the biggest problems is the cost. It's lots of small villages spread out over a very large country. And these are poor people who can't afford to pay very much for electricity. So, the beauty of renewable energy is it's cheaper and it's decentralized. So, it's much easier to install a small solar panel setup or a couple of wind turbines to provide energy in really remote areas. So, what are the
0: best benefits of adapting to renewable energy in India? Well, I think
9: it's the lower cost, it's the lack of pollution. Right now, India is mostly powered by coal and they've had huge air pollution issues throughout the country. The other aspect that doesn't get as much recognition is the water usage. So all forms of electricity with the exception of solar and wind require a lot of good quality water to generate electricity. And coal uses billions of gallons of water to, you know, heat and provide electricity. So we've got this country that has A lot of water shortages, not enough water to uh, grow its crops. Farmers are forced to dig deeper and deeper into aquifers to pump water to grow some food. Meanwhile, you have coal, of course, requires lots of water.
0: Now, as you wrote, it's now cheaper to produce wind and solar energy in India than it is to produce coal energy. So how has the country become so successful at lowering the cost of renewable energy?
9: Well, they have a massive market. That's one of the things that has really driven down the costs of renewable energy. I think not just in India, but also around the world, where the prices have been falling year on year. But what they're getting right now is a lot of financing from banks and financial institutions who see there's money to be made here. This isn't a charity project. This is a money-making venture for a lot of companies. So those folks who are installing the renewables and the wind... These are power companies who are borrowing money, millions of dollars from banks, and they are planning on making some profits off of this.
0: A number of years ago, folks in India were saying they would have to build a lot of coal fired power plants to light all those homes that don't have electricity. Now they switched over to renewable and linked up to the fact that LEDs require a lot less electricity. How was India able to have that kind of integrated systems thinking to move forward in this way? Well,
9: I think they've had strong leadership from their Prime Minister Modi that this is the future for India. They've also seen other benefits to renewable energy. For instance, right now India loses about 30% of all the energy it generates in transmission losses, but by having decentralized solar power and wind, they've really cut those transmission line losses, and that's a big savings in terms of energy. So there's multiple effects of savings on of simply a lot of money that no longer needs to go into something as big and massive like a coal plant. Plus, they can build renewable energy a lot faster than coal plants.
0: Now, someone perhaps in the U.S. or another advanced country will be saying, well, it's all right for India to have solar and wind, but they're intermittent. The sun doesn't always shine. The wind doesn't always blow. Some electricity is better than none, but that really wouldn't work here because we need electricity 24-7. What's the response?
9: Well, I did ask that question to the energy minister, Piyush Goyal, and his answer was, yes, we're going to have coal. We're going to have coal to supplement when the wind doesn't blow and the sun isn't shining. We're going to need a combination of energy sources for India's future. But the moment they've said that they're not going to build any new coal plants for probably the next decade, the few that are currently under construction they will complete After that period of time, they're hopeful that they can slowly develop battery storage, you know, ways of storing renewable intermittent energy. That technology has been a bit expensive at this point, but it's coming along very quickly as well in terms of lower costs. So in the future, they'll be able to store the renewable energy, and that will mean they can wean themselves off coal.
0: So how many gigawatts of uh, renewable energy is India planning to install in this program?
9: They plan to add 160 gigawatts over the next four years, and they may be able to do that even sooner. For comparison, the U.S. in 2015 had just over 100 gigawatts in solar and wind. And, of course, that took several decades to build
0: up to that 100 gigawatt. So if the U.S. doesn't get a move on, India is going to pass the United States, huh?
9: Yes, they will probably pass the U.S. by the year 2022.
0: 2022. Stephen, it seems to me that in a funny kind of way, India has an advantage with so many people without any electricity that they're leapfrogging all that uh, costly infrastructure that we have. Uh, Your perception? Well, they have a
9: driving need to get electricity to people who don't have it. And this is true in a lot of developing countries. They want change. They need change. They know they have to make change. So they're willing to put the resources and the urgency into having these things like renewable happen quickly, whereas in countries developed, you know, industrialized countries are already fairly comfortable and we don't necessarily see a pressing urgency for change. So I think that's part of the motivation. Secondarily, they don't need a lot of electricity. They just need a little bit of electricity for lighting to charge their phones. It's not necessary to provide the amount of electricity that the average American enjoys currently.
0: What kind of transformation for a villager who had no electricity before does solar and or wind bring to his village?
9: It could be huge because now at night, instead of having a smoky lantern powered by, you know, using kerosene, which has its own, you know, hazards, it's a fire hazard, so now with an LED light, a young student can do his homework in the evenings, whereas it would have been too dark or the flickering light would have been also too expensive. LEDs are cheaper than kerosene. So there's a number of things. They can also look at, well, there are now low power LED, kind of like flash drive computers that are, use very little energy. So small little laptops could be something that can be powered by, easily powered by solar or by wind. So these are all new things that will now be able to be part of the average village in India.
0: I imagine with all of this, it'll be a huge leap into the middle class for those people then, huh?
9: Yeah, and I think they'll also be able to provide lots of services. So, for instance, if you have access, say, to the internet and you're a farmer, well, then you can get a better price for your crops because you'll know what the average price, selling price is for others, regions. So there's a whole pile of advantages that electricity will bring. I mean, let's face it, who doesn't want to have electricity?
0: So the top emitters in the world, Stephen, as you know, uh, China, the U.S., and then India. Each country made pledges at Paris. India's plan, how does this uh, put it on the path to meet its promises at Paris, do you think?
9: Yeah, India is going to meet its Paris commitments. It's going to, according to the latest analysis by scientists, if it is able to pull this off, what it's already in the middle of doing, it will exceed those commitments. And for comparison, the U.S. is not on track to make its Paris commitments. For that matter, neither is Canada, unfortunately
0: we should note that you're Canadian. Yes. So Prime Minister Modi has a term. It ends, I believe, in 2019. How critical is he in this green energy transformation? And and how lasting might these policies be if someone else were to take office there?
9: That's an important question. I think Prime Minister Modi has been essential to this transition. And I think by 2019, because so many things will have been delivered, the LED lights, the access to energy for everyone in India, massive amounts of new renewable energy. I think it'll be too far down the road for India to turn back completely. It's certainly possible that a new government might re-emphasize coal. But I think the, the general public will have seen the benefits. They'll see that it's real. And they will, I think, understand that this is where India has to go for its future, what can
0: other developing countries learn from India's energy transformation? Do you think?
9: I think they can learn that it can happen very quickly, that it's lower cost, and it can provide, like you know, benefits to people who have not had access to electricity in a very short period of time, one or two years, as opposed to a five or ten year and hyper expensive mega project. And it brings real benefits to local people without having some of the side of the downsides of massive infrastructure projects, which are can be very disruptive. They won't
0: have the air pollution issues. They'll also be uh,
9: protecting their water resources.
0: And uh, what about the United States? What can or should the, the U.S. learn from India's progress uh, in this energy transformation?
9: Well, I think they should understand that coal is not the answer going back to coal, and that fossil fuels, the day of fossil fuels is over, and that even a country that is a developing country with all sorts of social and other issues can make this rapid transition to renewable energy for the benefit of its citizens, but also for you know the benefits of its economy. They're building what we might
0: call a 21st century economy around renewable energy. Stephen Leahy is an independent journalist covering international environmental issues. His most recent reporting on India's renewable energy transformation appeared in National Geographic... Stephen, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. You're very welcome. Next time on Living on Earth, as cocaine injects illicit money into Central America... Drug dealers are laundering their revenues by buying up tropical forests.
1: Clearing forests for cattle is a way to legitimize the profits from cocaine trafficking and put that into a legal economy.
0: But this narco traffic is also driving massive deforestation. That's next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week in the rain in Costa Rica and the Rincón de la Vieja National Park in the northwest. In the treetops, a troop of golden-mantled howling monkeys calls to each other across the cloud forest. They're fairly large monkeys, two to three feet long and mostly black, except for a distinctive golden fringe down their sides. Their diet consists of leaves, and they spend most of their time eating and sleeping. Andrew Roth recorded these noisy primates with the seedy, Natural Sounds of Costa Rica. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Matt Heusch, Noble Ingram, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Alex Metzger, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from John Gesso and Jake Rigo. Alison Lehrerstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, and like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on
8: Earth, and we tweet from at Living on Earth.
0: I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
8: Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, Developing the Next Generation of Environmental Leaders